Hello and welcome back. For those of you who are new to the show, we play this orientation every week in order to introduce you to some of the resources available on the Action for Canada website. By listening to this orientation over and over again, you will become familiar with what's available on the website, which in turn will empower you to speak confidently as you stand up for your rights and freedoms. The orientation, as well as recordings of each week's Empower Hour, are available on our website for you to re-watch or to share with your family and friends. I'd like to remind you right now to send out an invitation to your family and friends for tonight's meeting. You still have lots of time. The link will be posted in the chat. Be sure to go to our website to watch previous episodes of the Empower Hour. Last week's guest was Ted Kuntz, President of Vaccine Choice Canada. And next week's guest is Rocco Galati. The Zoom doors for next week's meeting will be open at 3.55 p.m. Pacific Time. There will be no orientation and we'll start the Empower Hour at 4 p.m. Pacific Time. Look for more details in next week's email. Tonight, Tom Harris, the Executive Director of International Climate Science Coalition, Canada, will be our special guest speaker. If you haven't joined an Action for Canada chapter yet, please be sure to do so. This is such a valuable way to connect with other like-minded, supportive people, and it will provide you with an opportunity to be a friend and to make new friends. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, you can join us for a time of prayer on Zoom. We also have a place for you to submit your specific prayer requests. The information you share will be kept confidential. Taboo Talks with Tanya is taking a break for the summer, but you can still go to our website to watch previous meetings. Some of the topics Tanya has covered, 5G, EMF wireless technology and the impact on our health, the World Economic Forum, the erosion of parental rights and freedoms, and much, much more. Taboo Talks will resume on September 13th, so be sure to mark that date on your calendar. For our youth, coming up on Friday, July 29th, is the first Games and Talent Night, so be sure to practice up on whatever talent you're going to share. Don't be shy, and remember, you're among friends. The, this event will be open to the youth who participated in the Youth Leadership Course, and we will be sending out an email invite for this. Many thanks and much love to everyone who donates to Action for Canada. Every gift, whether big or small, makes a huge impact. And we appreciate you coming alongside us and partnering with us. Thank you also for keeping us in your thoughts and prayers throughout the week. We value and appreciate your commitment to holding us up in prayer. I would also like to honor all the incredible people I have the pleasure of working with at Action for Canada, the Empower Hour crew, the core team, all the various volunteers and behind the scenes people, the techies, the photographers, media people, and of course, Tanya Gaw, the founder and leader of Action for Canada. And now it's time for the Empower Hour.
Hello and welcome to tonight's Empower Hour. It's July 13th, 2022, and we are so happy you can join us. Coming up is Action for Canada's founder, Tanya Gaw, with her weekly updates. And tonight, she'll be joined by Tom Harris, the Executive Director of International Climate Science Coalition, Canada. Action for Canada is a grassroots movement reaching out to millions of Canadians and uniting our voices in opposition to the destructive policies tearing at the fabric of our nation. Through Call to Action campaigns, we equip citizens to take action. We are committed to protecting faith, family and freedom. I'm so honored to introduce you to Tanya Gaw, the founder of Action for Canada. Seven years ago, Tanya started bringing awareness and truth to Canadians about the destructive government policies damaging our nation. Through calls to action, relevant resources and timely campaigns, Tanya has inspired and empowered citizens to stand up for their rights and freedoms. She's an activist, a freedom fighter and, above all, has an unshakable faith in God and believes in the power of prayer. Welcome Tanya and thank you for the countless hours of work you do on behalf of Canadians all across this land. Hi Hannah, thank you, thank you and welcome everybody for being on the show here with us again tonight. Um, Heather, this is going to indeed be an interesting evening. This is an incredibly important topic, so I am excited to get to our guest. But first, I'll dig in and do a quick update and uh, just uh, do a little bit of a review over the webpage and a few things, some things I'm a little bit excited about to show you tonight. So Terenzio, if we're good, I will share my screen and uh, head right in. We are good. All right, super. Thank you. Okay, I just want to encourage everybody because each week when I am sending out a weekly action, um, as I've always said, Action for Canada is not a just, just about educating you and I say scaring the bejeebers out of you. We want to tangibly give you uh, resources to help equip you and empower you for you to get involved in uh, defending your freedom. And so um, in order to find Action for Canada's chapter page, you would just go under join to a chapters. You'll come up with this page and I always love to highlight uh, this map because I think it's really important to see what the power of people can do across a nation. And, uh, you know, we've been growing very quickly. With that come a few bumps. We've said that every week that some of our chapters are not as active as they could be, but we are bringing more people on to give greater support to our leaders provincially. So we've now got provincial chapter leaders to oversee the people with the boots on the ground trying to create communities. And so every week I am appealing to you to get involved with a chapter to be a leader and um, you know if you want to view this page and go and look at a province and see what's available you can see that it's really quite amazing when you take a look at Alberta considering we had no chapters there a year ago in British Columbia and uh, we're pretty much everywhere in the country as the map is uh, revealing so we're very excited about that uh, being involved in a chapter, building up thousands, hundreds or thousands of people in a community is important because as you know, we are focused on taking back every level of government. The school board trustees and the municipalities, there's elections in BC, Manitoba, Ontario and PEI this fall. And I believe we can do this. I believe that we can get rid of these 
fascists that have come into our school boards and who are harming our children with all these ridiculous uh, programs, critical race theory, the fear of climate change, the trans agenda. It all needs to go. We need to clean house, but it's going to start within our communities and each one of us taking some responsibility. So I just want to encourage you there. Get involved. We're trying to make it as easy on you as possible and to educate you along the way as best we can on all the important topics. The plan and the strategy against citizens around the world has been very thoroughly and well thought thought out every step of the way. And uh, so we've been, you know, announcing and uh, really diving in and doing a lot of research on important topics. As you can see, under Call to Action, on our weekly emails, you could just scroll down and see the type of things that we're bringing to people's attention and then also helping them to get involved. For instance, this is this is going to keep, we're going to stay on this topic about getting all this sexualization of our children and the critical race theory and everything out of our schools. And as well, we are exposing the RCMP and the corruption there. Silence from the RCMP leaders is corruption in our eyes. And we're going to make sure that those who are quiet at the top um, and not stepping up and stepping out are going to be exposed. So this week we dug in again, like I say, and boy, oh boy, um, every time I put the time in to create these actions, myself and my team, we get so well educated as well. And so we want to take copious amounts of information and, and break it down into eight minutes. You can imagine how difficult that is in order to give Canadians a good view of what is transpiring. So many of you may start to see on, you know, the mainstream media, they may be talking about the Netherlands, you know, and how horrible these radical people are that are opposing, you know, the government trying to take away their farmland. And uh, of course, if you go to independent media, you see the other story that it's part of the global agenda to interrupt our food supply and to gain global control over humanity and also cause a lot of people a lot of starvation. So that's why we made up this uh, image, stop supporting climate alarmism. It's feeding the globalist beast and it is literally creating world hunger. Look at some countries, their shelves of Western nations, their shelves are actually empty. Uh, So we have a responsibility to be aware and we have a responsibility to take action. But as I've said here, do not be discouraged because we come with solutions. And so I can't wait to get to Tom tonight. We always provide an Empower Hour invite. And, you know, the best thing you can do is help us out by sharing all of our social on all of your social media, um, our weekly actions, as well as our Empower Hour. And then within the document, as always, I'm sure most of you know and are familiar that we try to provide uh, pertinent information. So it's an eight minute read, but you could spend a couple of hours on this page listening to the videos and being educated. I know somebody in the chat had said that they watched uh, this video. Uh, This is 15 minutes long, but the full version is about two hours and it is so interesting. And I walked away from this having absolutely no doubt that it is nothing but um, individuals with very nefarious, a very nefarious agenda who are behind all of this. Uh, just to make it very clear, cows are not hurting the environment. 
All right. Um, it is the government that is is uh, creating this illusion. And because CO2 levels, they could no longer exist on climate change with this scare that uh, carbon dioxide was killing us all because all the evidence is showing that is absolutely false. So now all of a sudden they want to say it's fertilizer. It's nitrogen that's now interfering. And so we've got to shut down all agriculture. It's ridiculous. These people should be so ashamed of themselves. And uh, one day I am very, very hopeful that we're going to bring them all to um, account and, and that justice will prevail. This is no joke. They are wanting you and I to eat bugs. And uh, we have the largest cricket processing plant right here in Canada, in Ontario, the world's largest cricket plant. So I don't know about you, but I'm not going to the garden eat worms and I'm not going to be eating crickets and bugs. That's just not on the menu. And uh, you could see here as well that uh, the WEF, they ended up saying the five reasons why eating bugs could reduce climate change, not will reduce it, but could possibly, maybe. That's not a good enough reason to start, start eating bugs. And I asked the good question, if you could picture Klaus and his little cabal there with Trudeau and Gates and the rest of them sitting around the table, uh, you know, coming up with this nonsense and laughing at us. And I can definitely believe that they have had those opportunities where they've been sitting there with their little hands and their little fists and all as they've, you know, uh, planned and strategized against the citizens of the world. Justice is coming. Anyways, I did a comparison here of, uh, you know, this this lady here. She is such a ninny. Uh, you know, Christia Freeland. <laughs> Every time I, I just can't even really listen to her, but I had to force myself to listen to her in this instance. And as we consider fossil fuels versus electric, she is a big fat liar. She is lying to you, telling you that we need to reduce fossil fuels and go electric. Because as um, I prove in this report, electric cars are, are cost, causing more harm to the environment than uh, gas engines. And so here's a lithium mine, and uh, lithium ion batteries are what run electric vehicles. And you cannot tell me that this is not causing harm to our environment. This is only one image. If you Google lithium ion batteries, or sorry, mines, you will see hundreds of these images around the world. All right, it's destroying our landscape. I don't know what they're going to make. Maybe a big lake. I don't know. We have the Ogopogo here in, uh, in, in BC. Possibly, you know, they might put some sea serpents or something in there. I, I'm just disgusted when I researched and look into this. Every week, we are still highlighting one of our wonderful youth and giving them a voice. And it was very timely this week because um, after our eight-week training session with the youth program, helping kids to uh, learn how to, to speak and be leaders, uh, Ava did one on geoengineering, chemtrails, and, and, and the timing was just perfect. And so I would really encourage you. I was... Months ago, I was never one that believed that um, our weather was being manipulated. But after reading this report and seeing how long back they have been talking about weather mo modification to 1891, they have the proof and the history on it. And I would uh, recommend that you watch the video once again, spend the time investing and knowing and learning and being educated. And then I love, I love Michelle Sterling. 
and she really digs into defending our kids and she brings awareness to the fact that we actually have ad standards against exploiting children and you can read these two sections here I would encourage you to copy and paste those and send them to your local school boards and tell them to knock it off stop scaring the heck out of our kids with these programs in the school that are scientifically unfounded and then we close off in a section here at the end with solutions join an action for canada chapter help us recruit canadians to learn about action for canada because we are literally one of the only organizations with a national program that has chapters that have been implemented to grow communities within com communities but also to provide them the resources in in, in able to do that and uh, make sure that no matter who you are or what you're facing employee teacher student uh, elected official we have support for you so help us out with that all right i want to get to the show but i want to let you know uh, we are going to have rocco on next week i'm very excited about that there was this verse i came across today from the bible and it says do what is good and run from evil that means live a good life do what is right so that you may live then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper, just as you have claimed. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. So we need to pray that God will have mercy on this nation. We need to support incredible legal initiatives like what we have commenced with Rocco. We look forward to um, having him on next week and that he is finally back. So I just want to, this was the encouragement around the world in nations, hundreds of thousands of people are showing up in opposition against their government. And this was one with 367,000 views of people in Italy. So that's a lot of people. The other one was a, a wave, a sea of hundreds of thousands of people in um, another nation, in another country. And I'm just so delighted. But what the heck is wrong with Canadians? Where are they? Right. We, we've got uh, we should have 3000 people on this call. We need you to help us out in getting the word of Action for Canada out there. It's just not Action for Canada. It's other organizations. They are just not seeing that a match is lit under Canadians. They haven't actually ha actually had to suffer tyranny. Uh, throughout my generation, but I learned from my parents who came from Europe and we're in big trouble in Canada and we need to not put anything on pause, not become complacent over the summer, but we need to get out there and be on the front lines and, and fighting this war and strategizing before the fall hits when they're really going to bring it down and really begin to crush Canadians once again. All right. Um, okay. So again, go to join under Empower Hour, under this chat links, you will find next week, Tom Harris is listed here. We will have his presentation that he's going to give tonight as well on this page and for any past guests that we've had on. All right, uh, Heather, would you please come on and let's bring Tom into the room. I'm excited about his presentation. And thank you, Tanya, for your updates. There are so many great resources on the Action for Canada web website, and I never get tired of hearing what you have to share with us. 
It's my pleasure to introduce for the first time on the Empower Hour, Mr. Tom Harris. Tom is the Executive Director of International Climate Science Coalition Canada and is a well-respected man of many talents and extensive knowledge. He has 30 years experience as a mechanical engineer and project manager. He is a science and technology communications professional as well as a technical trainer and S&T advisor to a former opposition senior environment critic in Canada's Parliament. For the past 14 years he has been working with a team of scientists and engineers to promote a sensible approach to a range of energy and environmental topics, in particular climate change. At one time, Tom believed that our world was facing a carbon dioxide-induced climate emergency, but over time he realized he was wrong in this assumption and he changed from a climate alarmist to a climate realist. Tom now does radio and TV interviews and gives presentations regarding his work as well. His work is regularly pu published in newspapers across the world. Please help me welcome Tom Harris. Tom, we're so excited that you can join us today and welcome to the Empower Hour. <laughs> Great to be on, that's for sure. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Tom, welcome. I don't want to take up any more time, so we just want to hand the floor over to you. We want to thank you so much for being here tonight and to help educate us further on this very important topic. Sure. Well, you know, I think many people in the world actually think that we have a climate emergency. There's all kinds of other motivations we can talk about, things like world government, of course, things like, uh, you know, basically reducing the strength of the West. But Many people believe, like I used to believe, that the media were telling us the truth. And it's interesting because at the time, I mean, I was an aerospace engineer. I was trained in mechanical engineering, and my subspecialty was aerospace. So I was actually looking at things like heat transfer and thermodynamics and fluid mechanics, which made me think that I actually understood the climate, because <laughs> the climate, of course, is a big thermofluid system. But what I didn't realize was that, in fact, I was being deceived. And that's the whole point of my presentation today. So it's my journey from climate alarmism to climate realism. And, you know, if somebody with a master's in engineering and aerospace specialization can be deceived, then I think lots and lots of people can be deceived. I believe that headlines like this were actually realistic. Climate, you know, this is a Time magazine, one from fairly recently, how the pandemic can lead us to a better and greener future. And <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But I believe things like this. The Washington Post just recently said Earth is approaching a key climate tipping point. The world is on track to blaze, love those words, a eh? blaze, past a crucial climate target within eight years. Now, of course, they've been saying that for a long time, and we'll show you that uh, actually going back to 1970. We've been almost on the verge of a climate emergency within a decade many times, but of course, nothing's happened. So I actually changed my presentations. I was a professional speaker as a hobby, and I changed my presentations to actually talk about space exploration, environment, and human survival. And I talked about how we were actually saving the home planet through space travel, and in particular, by exploring other worlds, we actually could apply many of the lessons that we were learning to the Earth. And uh, that they call that field comparative planetology. And the example I used, actually, was how the runaway greenhouse effect on Venus was something that could happen on the Earth if we weren't careful and you know that sort of thing was coming in the future. And I actually took part in Earth Day 
1991, giving this kind of a message to the public. I spoke to Kiwanis clubs, I spoke to service clubs all over the Ottawa region and in other places, and I gave presentations to many organizations as well. And the whole focus of my talk was saving the home planet uh, by exploring other worlds. Now, part of what I was saying I still think is true, and that is that by exploring other worlds, we come to appreciate the Earth more, and it gives us a psychological change which allows us to be better stewards of our environment. But I use the example of the runaway greenhouse effect on Venus. And in fact, I had an article published in the Ottawa Citizen. And it was liked so much by Professor Tim Patterson that he used it in his course at Carleton University. And here is the page where he put up my article. And I was talking about how environmentalists should be boosting climate change. And in particular, I was talking about the Cassini mission to Saturn. But a little later in the article, I used this example. And I'll just read it out to you because it's actually quite wrong, but this is what I was saying. And, and it sort of allows you to sort of forgive people, you know, for actually thinking that there is a climate emergency. And I have here actually the text of a speech I was giving around that time. So I'll just read about a minute of it. Other planets provide us with full-scale laboratories to not only test out our environmental theories, but also to show what can happen here if we do not properly take care of the Earth. There are many good examples of comparative planetology. However, for today, I've chosen to speak about just one, which comes from the robotic exploration of Venus. Starting in the late 1950s, radio telescopes were used for the first time to measure radiation coming from Venus. These emissions indicated that the planet's surface temperature was about 460 degrees Celsius. That's hot enough to melt lead or tin, by the way, so it's not a place you want to spend your summer holiday. This was also significantly hotter than Mercury. And of course, Mercury is the closest planet to the sun. So it was quite surprising to scientists that Venus would be uh, actually hotter than Mercury. But they also thought that it actually Venus should be cooler than the Earth, even though Venus is closer to the sun, because Venus has many more clouds than we do. They're covered totally with clouds, which reflect back into space the incident sunlight. Yet strangely, Venus was by far the hottest world in the solar system. Many scientists thought that something must be wrong with the instruments, or perhaps they just didn't understand the physical science well enough. The answer to this mystery was finally supplied in 1962 when the Mariner 2 robot spacecraft flew by Venus. It found that the planet really was about 460 degrees and that its massive atmosphere was mostly carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is, of course, a greenhouse gas which effectively traps heat on a planetary body. The fact that this world was so incredibly hot due to the greenhouse effect, now remember, I'm saying this in ignorance, <laughs> was a sobering example of what can happen on a planetary scale if the amount of carbon dioxide becomes too high. So I, I went on to use that in an article, as I say, in the Ottawa Citizen. Now, Professor Tim Patterson liked the article so much, he put it up on his course webpage for the students. And he said, however, the part on Venus was wrong. And the reason it's wrong is this. Venus is actually very hot for several reasons. Obviously, the CO2 contributes to that. But you have to realize not only is Venus closer to the sun than the Earth, but a day on Venus is something in the order of a half a year. So the planet is spinning very, very slowly. On the Earth, every 24 hours, we're in night. And we, a lot of heat come, is dissipated away from the Earth at night. So we cool off every 24 hours, which is one of the reasons Earth isn't hotter. But Venus, because it spins so slowly, 
gets really hot. And there's another reason, too. It turns out Venus does not have oceans, of course. You're not going to have oceans at that kind of temperature. But it also does not have plate tectonics, which Earth has. So what happens on Earth is the carbon dioxide, and this is what Tim Patterson explained to his students. What happened on Earth is that carbon dioxide is absorbed by the oceans. That's the major absorber of carbon dioxide, aside from the actual rocks. And, but what happens is then fossil or sea creatures, uh, you know, shelled sea creatures, use the local environment to make their shells. They die. They fall to the bottom. And what happens is the carbon dioxide effectively is absorbed in the shells while those uh, seashells are being made and deposited on the ocean floor. Now, ordinarily, the ocean floor would eventually become saturated and it wouldn't be able to absorb any more of the carbon dioxide that's being taken down by the dead seashells. But because the Earth has plate tectonics, it constantly replenishes the surface of the Earth with new, um, with new material. So that combination, the greenhouse gases closer to the sun, a very long day, and the fact that Venus does not have oceans or um, plate tectonics, that is the combined reason why Venus is so hot. So I heard that Dr. Patterson was using my article from The Citizen, but that he told the students that I was wrong on the Venus issue. So I wondered, you know, who is this um, right-wing denier, oil-funded, you know, who is this guy? So he invited me into his lab, and I got a big surprise. Tim Patterson was a bushy bearded black black uh, black beard, and he rode his bicycle to school every day. He adopted a baby from China. He didn't sort of fit into the mold that I had in my mind of this right winger. <laughs> and what he showed me was that in the geologic record, and remember, today's computer um, models are the foundation of the climate scare. It's not the actual record. And we'll, we'll look at the record in a few minutes. But what he showed me was things like this. Now, this is a graph that shows up to 600 million years ago. That's about the time when the first, the first hard-shelled sea creatures existed. So they go back in time that far, and they get pretty good fossils. They grind them up, and they do oxygen isotope analysis, and they can actually get an indication of temperature. We can talk about that in the question period afterwards, how they do it. And atmospheric CO2 is measured in, in other ways. So let's take a look at this. I have a little bit of a, uh, a video to play, which will show how the two go together. And this totally astounded me when Dr. Patterson showed me this kind of information. So here we see average global temperature staying pretty constant. But then look at that, a big spike in carbon dioxide. And by the way, have a look at the levels of carbon dioxide we're talking about. Remember, in today's atmosphere, we're around, around here. 420 parts per million. At a half a billion years ago, we were up around 4,000 to 7,000, okay? And there was an explosion of life. So the whole idea that high CO2 is threatening to life is obviously wrong. We can see that in the geologic record, but we can also see that this big change in carbon dioxide resulted in no change to the global average temperature. Let's look at, go along here. What you notice is sometimes they're in sync, sometimes they're not in sync, and sometimes they're completely the opposite. <laughs> so what I started to realize was that, at least from the geological perspective, there was no meaningful, consistent correlation between CO2 and temperature. And if you go up to this point here, you see where we're up at today. What you notice is that carbon dioxide and uh, CO2, 
sorry, CO2 and temperature are among the lowest in the record. Okay, we're actually in a carbon dioxide famine right now. Most plants on the earth actually evolved at a time when CO2 was much higher. You know, back in these kinds of regions, a Jurassic where we had, you know, lots and lots of massive plants. And so right now we're actually at a CO2 famine. If you actually look down here at the, now we're up to probably about, I guess, around there, because it's gone up a little since this graph was made. But when people talk about a 30% or 40 or 50% rise in the last century, the answer to that question is, so what? <laughs> I mean, a 50% rise from a starvation level of CO2 for plants is actually a good thing. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So that was the first indication I had that, oh, maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> well, Dr. Patterson actually exposed me to lots more scientists and introduced me to much more research that showed that in the real geologic record, there's no correlation between CO2 and temperature. And here's what the, you basically conclude from the geologic history. Scientists note that geologically speaking, the era that we're in right now is a CO2 famine. They, the geologic record reveals that ice ages and ice houses, ice houses, you know, are much, much colder periods. For example, 440 million years ago, the whole earth was so cold that some scientists are saying that there may have been no uh, surface of the earth not covered with ice. In other words, even the oceans were covered with ice. They call it the ice ball earth theory. And some scientists think that may have been the case at some point in the past. And yet at those times, ice ages and ice house periods, look at that, CO2 levels, 2,000 to 8,000 parts per million in comparison with today's measly 420. Temperatures have been similar to the present day when carbon dioxide were up to 20 times higher than today. So the interesting thing about the climate scare is that when you go to meetings or you see interviews on television, notice how often they interview geologists. The answer is usually zero <laughs> because geologists know that in the history of the world, there is simply no indication that CO2 is a problem. Yet Al Gore showed us things like this. He showed us how the temperature rose suddenly to, well, what was here, now it's up, up about here, and how this was the forecast for the future, and this was the greatest in a half, you know, 600,000 years. Here's a graph that shows it a little further back, and this is correct, 800,000 years ago, and we look at today's levels, oh my God, look, 2,100. It might be as high as 940, which we double today's level. But yet again, the answer to that is to look at the original graph here and say, so what? <laughs> you know, so it's important to keep perspective. And this graph actually shows the black line being the uh, CO2 level millions of years in the past. The worst forecast for the 21st century or the end of the 21st century is this red line here, which uh, is still very low. Okay, so that would be like around 940 parts per million in comparison with today's 420. So, so really, CO2 is not a problem from a climatic point of view. I mean, it's very clear. So you have to ask, where does the scare come from? And we'll talk about that in a second. And as you can see, Al Gore he only showed us part of the graph. He didn't show us what it was in longer time frame. And the interesting thing also is that if you're concerned about rise in CO2, then all of these different UN climate agreements are completely pointless because they're not actually accomplishing anything. You can see CO2 has been rising year after year. And all these agreements, Kyoto, and then up here, the Paris Agreement, and then the lockdown, on and on and on. I was at the Copenhagen Agreement. I was at Paris. 
talking all about how we're going to reduce CO2 to save the planet. Meanwhile, CO2 just goes up and ignores us completely. Doesn't matter what agreements we make, how much money we spend, CO2 is just going to do what it does. And you have to remember that carbon dioxide is a plant food, okay? And greenhouses force carbon dioxide levels up to 1,200 or 2,000 parts per million, three to five times greater than the 415 or 420 that we see in today's atmosphere. And that's, of course, because plants grow bigger and they need less water when you have more CO2. Worldwide food harvests are up more than 30% in the last 30 years. And this is thanks to more CO2. And we'll, I mean, really, CO2 increase has no downside. It's not driving climate change. That's pretty clear. CO2, of course, is benign. It's invisible. It's odorless. It's, uh, it's not a toxin unless you get it up to, you know, levels far higher than it's ever been in Earth's history. And, and of course, the reason why CO2 could be a problem eventually is that it would displace oxygen. But nothing has occurred in the last half billion years to indicate that we are anything like that today. We're not just simply, this cannot happen. And yet we have these headlines constantly appearing, 1972, 10 years to stop catastrophe, 1982, oh, 10 years later, an environmental catastrophe, you know, et cetera. We shall win or lose the struggle in the first years of the 1990s. You would think that if somebody calls wolf that many times, that eventually somebody's going to sort of wake up. Well, some people are. Some people are waking up, and I'll talk more about that later. Here is the temperature graph that we're almost always shown. And people say, oh, my goodness, look at how temperatures soared over the last 30 or 40 years. But what people don't really notice is the incredibly tiny increments. We're talking about a half a degree and one degree. Since 1880, temperature's gone up if you average the Earth's temperature, which is kind of a useless statistic because nobody lives in an average of the Earth. They all live in regions. But the temperature average has gone up about 1.2 degrees. And even the UN admits that. So when I have Greenpeace tell me, oh, my God, we have a climate emergency, I ask them, and this is a question you might want to ask people who tell you that there really is an emergency, how much has it warmed in the last 140 years? And they say, oh, it must be 10 degrees. I say, no, 1.2. And in fact, it's funny because climatologists say if there weren't climatologists and meteorologists around to tell us about this warming, the warming is so small you would not even notice it in your lifetime. Okay, <laughs> and this is what it looks like if you plot it properly. Okay, so we're going all the way from zero degrees Fahrenheit up to 110. You know, that's the kind of a range that you'd see in many parts of the world. And you can see, yeah, there is some rise. But it's pretty tiny. And let's take a look at the United States. Here's the mean, how the mean has changed. Okay, you can see the mean here is the increasing. <laughs> Oh, wow, that's a climate emergency. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And here is the best measurements of uh, temperature. It's actually not measured directly. It's measuring from radiation from satellites. And you can see that the amount of warming that has occurred uh, from the average from 91 to the year 2000, we're only at six one hundredths of a degree. Six one hundredths of a degree. I, you can't even measure that with a normal thermometer. And that's a climate emergency, <laughs> according to our extreme environmentalist friends. This is the source of the climate scare. It's not present data. It's not past data. It's future forecasts of computer models. 
Okay, now computer models over the last 30 years, you can see it is, they have over forecast the warming by about 300%. Okay, so you've got, here's the model forecast for this time period. And these are all different models. And you can see the, uh, that's the average of the models. And you can see the actual observations way down here. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a stockbroker who every time he gave me a stock to buy and he forecast what was going to happen, he was out by 300%, I might change stockbrokers. <laughs> this model, this also shows that the average of the computer models, which is this red line, is far, far higher than what they're actually measuring down below. Okay. Now, finally, many people talk about, oh, but it's extreme weather. You know, we have much more extreme weather. Well, actually, no. The very best database of its kind in the world put out by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and this one here as well, uh, it records things like record snowfall, you know, record minimum, rec record maximum temperature, record precipitation. These are based, these are statewide. This is a number of all-time records in the uh, Historical Climate Network. And you can see that the records for maximum temperature, for example, were mostly set in the 1930s. And that today, there's really nothing going on. So you have to say, well, what's going on? We do seem to be noticing extreme weather a lot more. And there's two reasons. First of all, there's an observational bias. If a major tornado hit Oklahoma 100 years ago, there was a good chance that nobody would have seen it at all. Whereas now, we have a much denser population. So not only will we see it, we'd probably have cell phones actually taking pictures. And the second reason is that there's a huge densification of infrastructure. Over the last century, infrastructure has increased by about 13-fold uh, around the world. So in Florida, for example, if you had one hotel on a stretch of beach and a hurricane hit, that one hotel might be damaged, but now you've got 13 hotels. And while we do a good job of hurricane forecasting and warning people and building things to be more robust, fact is you have a lot more things in harm's way. So those are the things that are really happening. This also is very revealing. This is the global deaths from natural disasters. And you can see that it's gone way, way, way down. Now, in the time period before we had satellites, we did have these huge spikes, okay? People killed because of uh, extreme temperature, extreme weather, droughts, wildfires, you know, volcanic activities, earthquakes. We're much better now at forecasting and warning people, getting people out of harm's way. We're also building structures in a much more sensible fashion. But so, so you actually see that from the point of view of temperature, from the point of view of CO2, extreme weather, and I can go on to the other ones, ice cover and polar bears and ocean pH, all the rest of them, there is no evidence in the real world outside of computer models that we actually have a climate emergency and natural disaster deaths are way, way, way down. Now, I think just to end off, I think you find the fun, following story a little bit funny. The thing that really solidified my belief in climate realism was a presentation by David Suzuki. <laughs> and, you know, I agree with Suzuki on some things, but I went to a presentation, uh, oh, I don't know, it was around 1990 at the Congress Center in Ottawa. And I brought with me papers from leading climate experts from MIT, from Harvard, from Yale, you know, from Canadian universities as well. And I went to the microphone in front of about a thousand people and I said, you know, Dr. Suzuki, there are many scientists who specialize in this field. And of course, you have to remember Suzuki was a fruit fly geneticist. But I said, there's many scientists who disagree with what you're saying about climate change. And he said to me, 
who are these scientists who disagree with me? <laughs> it's like God was speaking. So I reached over and I pulled out of my briefcase some of the papers and I started to read it. Well, they instantly turned off my microphone. Well, I used to work in AV, so I saw how to turn it back on. So I reached over, I turned it back on. And I said, Dr. Suzuki asked me a question. I have a good answer. To which Suzuki then turned to the moderator and said, then I withdraw the question. And they pulled the power to the PA system until I sat down. <laughs> so it was interesting because in a way he did me a favor because not only did it actually encourage me to realize that something's being hidden here, <laughs> but there were people who came up to me after the presentation curious to see what were these papers that were disagreeing. So people actually had more interest because he shut me up. <laughs> But, you know, we're hearing more and more statements like this. You're a climate denier if you disagree with any of the climate, um, you know, uh, mantra. And you belong in jail. And believe it or not, in California, they actually were trying before the previous election. They may bring it back again. I don't know. But before the state election, they were trying to make it illegal, actually have it as a crime to deny what they said was known climate science. And... Uh, so it's pretty wild. It's like something right out of 1984. So that's my journey from climate alarmism to climate realism. And I'm really glad I made the move. And since then, I've come in contact with so many thousands of scientists. You know, these documents, for example, these are massive documents. I'll just hold it up in such a way you can see it. Uh, you can see there's a thousand pages. And these are the climate change reconsidered reports of the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change. And they include literally thousands of references from peer-reviewed journals all over the world, things the media are purposely suppressing, things that Facebook are suppressing, things that Twitter are suppressing, things that our government are suppressing. And I gave this book, this big book, to Catherine McKenna when she was environment minister. I met her in the hall after a meeting, and I had a little bit of a talk with her. She was very pleasant, but she was completely clueless. She didn't have any idea that there were even any scientists who disagreed with what she was saying. And when I gave her this big book, her main comment was that it was heavy to carry back to her car. And within a week, she was back to calling us climate change deniers. So it seemed to have no impact at all on her. Maybe I should have hit her over the head with it. <laughs> that might have had some <laughs> impact. But, you know. Our politicians, those who actually understand what's really going on, especially in the Conservative Party, are far too frightened of the media to actually bring it up. And that's a real shame because there is, in fact, a great opportunity for the Conservative Party of Canada to lead Canada out of this disaster. Since, not, uh, since 2015, according to the uh, current environment, environment minister, believe it or not, Canada has spent $110 billion dollars on what Stephen Gubo calls the energy transition to stop climate change. 110 billion. This is one country in, what, seven years. I mean, it's incredible. And uh, so, yeah, we've got to fight against this because it's also going to be used to take away our freedom through lockdowns, and we can talk about that as well. So that's my intro. <laughs> Wow. Stop sharing screen. I'm sitting here taking notes and listening. I like your sense of humor, <laughs> um, although it's not a laughing matter. But we oh. know uh, that absolutely, you know, that all, all of this is um, meant to 
harm citizens around the world. They're walking in lockstep. And when you talk about Catherine McKenna, she's another ninny <laughs> and she's ridiculous. And to think that a book is too heavy rather than the content being too heavy, right? Um, yeah. What can you say about that? And and um, so one, I want to ask our viewers, if you have a question, now is a great time to raise your hand. Go down to the bottom and you'll see the icon to raise hand there. There's a section for uh, Q&A. And I think we'll dive right into that. Um, you know, I, as well, what I was thinking about is when you're talking about David Suzuki and it's like, oh, oh, you know, I withdraw the question and it goes yeah. back to that movie. It's like, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> and I, That's right. And, and it was yeah. interesting because the audience were more interested in what I had to say because I wasn't allowed to say it. <laughs> Well, yeah, that can be very intriguing as well, right? But it needs to be said. Um, I agree as well that this is one of the reasons we've really got to press in because the conservatives have been such a huge disappointment in not having the backbone to stand up and not fear, ooh, the media and, and rather, you know, move towards gaining a good public opinion based on truth and facts. So yeah. I really appreciate you... Uh, standing up, telling the truth, educating people. It is so important, Tom. Yeah. And, and, you know, I find that many people, when you show them the basic facts, first of all, they're shocked. You know, when I, I taught Tim Patterson's course for uh, four semesters at Carleton, I taught a total of 1,500 students by uh, television as well as in person. And the first reaction with, from the students is they were shocked. Man, you know, what's oh, this is all being hidden from us. And as time went by, I mean, there were some who were very upset. They didn't like this being told to them. But when I showed them the actual data, they were just so surprised. And they were actually very happy to learn about it because I think students, generally speaking, like to be contrarians. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because some of them, they just hated it so much that I was telling them something different. I remember during the final exam, believe it or not, I was walking around and helping students as they needed questions answered. And one of them put up her hand and this is what she said. She said, should I put down what you told us or what is true? Right. <laughs> and so I said, what I told you. Yes, because <laughs> that is true. I wasn't going to argue with her in the middle of the exam as to what was true. <laughs> Well, and this is the problem right now, right, is that our our children are so impressionable. They've got all of this climate alarm, alarm, alarmism right within the classroom. Uh, parents, I've had so many reports. This was a few years ago uh, when I was writing on this subject that parents would pick their kids up from school. They'd get in the car and the conversation was, Mom, you ruined the planet. And uh, like literally they had been taught that their generation has not taken care of the planet and we're doomed for destruction. And mm -hmm. that's why I appreciated um, Sterling's uh, view on this to bring awareness that, uh, you know, our kids, there are rules against instilling fear in them based on lies, first of all, and then using another child like Greta Thunberg to uh, market all of this nonsense in order mm -hmm. to get them all stirred up because that stir up is that uh, what you were just mentioning about them is kids like to be contrary. They want yeah. a cause to get behind. And, yeah. and we on the right, I'll call it the right, but 
uh, the right, uh, you exactly. know, the side of truth. Yeah, yeah, we've not been good about stirring up our students, in, you know, and so we're working on that because we understand that our kids are vital to the future, you know, of our country. Well, yeah, exactly. And I used to speak at high schools quite often. And, you know, it's interesting to see the reaction of the different levels of my audience. The students were very interested and they actually liked it because, as I say, they like questioning authority. The teachers were uh, so-so about it. The principal was really against it. And it was interesting because I was due to speak at a local Ottawa high school a little while ago. And the principal got a message from the school board and they were told that, I was to, my, my presentation was to be canceled because what I was saying was against government policy. And of course they work for the government. So, <laughs> so I didn't get to speak. And so now I'm not getting any engagements because they've put a kibosh on the whole thing because they don't want the students to hear this. No, and it's what they're doing is very damaging and very effective. And that's why at the onset, I always take time to show, uh, you know, the map of Canada, where Action for Canada chapters are going in, because we're also working with pastors and we're asking and appealing to business owners and churches to open their doors so that we can pull kids out of these cesspools of indoctrination, the public school systems and even some private schools and get them into a safe learning space where they can learn the truth, the facts mm -hmm. based on science. It wouldn't that be yeah. refreshing, <laughs> right? Yeah. All uh, right. Um, you know, it's funny. I find that, you know, I reread the book 1984 just a couple of years ago, and so much of what's in that book is coming true, is actually mm -hmm. reality now. And, and I encourage people, if you don't have time to read the whole book, at least look at the 10-page appendix at the very end. It's on Newspeak. And what they've done in 1984, of course, is they changed the language so that it affects the thinking pattern of the population. And sadly, the conservatives are buying into that. You know, Pierre Polyev, for example, talks about carbon sequestration to stop climate change. And it's not carbon. Carbon is soot or graphite, you know, things like that. That's real pollution. Uh, so, you know, the first thing the conservatives should stop doing is stop supporting the climate scare through their use of language, calling wind and solar green power, for example, Whereas, in fact, it's arguably the most dirty power on the whole planet. You know, we can talk about that later. But, I mean, the conservatives, sadly, are promoting the climate scare just with their use of language. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Can you actually explain what you mean by that? Uh, uh, this green is a dirty, dirty energy or how did you frame that? Yeah, it's it's arguably the most dirty energy on the planet, green and, you know, uh, wind and solar power. And, and the reason is this. First of all, people look at the wind or they see the results of the wind and the sun and they say, oh, it's free and it's clean and everything else. And yeah, that's true. But to try and get the energy out of it is very, very high technology uh, intensive. And, you know, the transition in energy use throughout human history has been from very diffuse energy sources like wind when we had wind windmills in Holland, for example, to more and more dense energy, eventually going to wood and then to coal and then uh, natural gas and oil and finally nuclear, it's becoming more and more dense, the energy sources. And that's a great thing because of course the environmental footprint is much smaller than if you have to you know, basically tear up a, a forest to, to put up wind turbines. You know, here in Ottawa, for example, they wanna put up, and you will find this hard to believe, they want to put up 710 industrial wind turbines taller than the Peace Tower. And what's going to be required is they're going to have to cut down a lot of the green belt because the trees, of course, give 
uh, a wind shade. You can't put a wind turbine behind a big group of trees because you don't have much wind. Yep. And the turbines themselves have to be spaced apart sufficiently that you know you can't put a turbine in the wind shadow of another turbine. So they've got to be a, a kilometer or so apart. The other point is, of course, they in Ontario they have to only be 550 meters from a a dwelling, which is too close, by the way, because they do cause infrasound, which penetrates the how the home goes right through your body, it causes headaches and all sorts of things. In Europe, mm-hmm. for example, they're talking about a two kilometer setback. So you have to say, well, where would they put 710 turbines taller than the Peace Tower with a two kilometer setback? Well, as I say, they'd have to cut down a lot of forest. They'd also have to get the turbine somewhere and this is the interesting thing in turbines in batteries in solar power there are a fair amount of rare earth materials that are required as well as things like cobalt and cobalt's a good example of why these are very dirty energy sources in the case of cobalt uh, the congo is the primary source in the world for cobalt and most of the mines there are owned by china so you can be pretty sure that they have pretty horrible human rights standards and in particular 40,000 children some as as young as 4 years old are going into these tiny small spaces and pulling out the cobalt they're being subjected to incredible well, first of all danger from collapse and things because if you look at these mines they're certainly not using high technology they're also exposed to radioactive dust and and you know it's just really a filthy environment then those cobalt um, that's mined in the Congo is shipped to China, where they're then used to make batteries and other things uh, in the green green energy field, where, of course, they dump all their effluents into the rivers and everything else. And they're even using slave labor, the Uyghurs, to, to construct a lot of these things. So, I mean, the... And the same thing with lithium. I mean, for lithium batteries, for example, yeah. uh, a lot of it comes from the lithium triangle in South America where they're using water that's already scarce, they're taking it away from the indigenous people. You know, I wrote an article a little while ago, and I think you put it on your website, about how progressives should actually look at where these energy sources are coming from, where the raw materials come from. And the same thing with, with, and, and you know, a really good movie to watch is Planet of the Humans by Michael Moore, Planet of the Humans. Now, Michael Moore is a dedicated left winger. And so for that reason, he became public enemy number one among progressives when he put this film out. Because what he showed, while he he thinks there is a climate scare, he shows that we are destroying the Earth even faster by the conversion to wind and solar power. And the interesting thing, Tanya, to realize is that although we've spent, I mean, literally trillions of dollars over the last couple of decades on wind and solar power, subsidizing it all over the place, it still represents about the same fraction of uh, world energy use as it did say 20 years ago we've been staying we've been hovering at around 80 percent of world energy use is hydrocarbons uh for a couple of decades and despite all this money that's being spent 300,000 wind turbines around the world industrial turbines a third of a million mm-hmm. despite all of this building we're still getting most of our energy about 80 percent from fossil fuels so i mean like the attempts to reduce co2 where all these treaties are being passed we're not succeeding. Even if you did believe that we were causing a climate crisis, it's not working. And, and the last thing I wanted well, to point out was yeah. the bird deaths, birds and bats. Yes. There's a wind yes. farm in California that's been going for a few decades now. It's called the Altamont Wind Farm. And it's killed something in the order of 3,000 golden eagles. 3,000 golden mm-hmm. eagles. So when people say to me, well, you know, cats kill more birds than do wind turbines. Yeah, that's true. But 
<laughs> they don't kill golden eagles. <laughs> no, I mean some of anything, the protected rap- species. Raptors, yeah, raptors may be killing the, the cats, but the cats are certainly not killing them. And the other fact is the bats. It's interesting because not only bats are killed not only when they are hit by the turbine blade, but even if they go in the low pressure zone behind a turbine blade, their their lungs burst and they actually suffocate. They drown basically wow. in their own blood. I mean, it's a very gruesome death for these bats. And twice as many bats are being killed by wind turbines than birds. In fact, I have a friend who works for a conservation center, and he's a lover of bats. And he talks about how important they are because they control our mosquito population. He says that we're going to see the extinction of some species of bats if we keep expanding wind turbines as quickly as we are. And he's very angry about that. So when you add all this up, it's not green energy. I mean, it's ridiculous to call this green energy. It's actually highly destructive and very ineffective on top of it. Well, you know, I'm so glad that you've clarified some of that because I know uh, when I travel to the interior, I pass this section and there's these three wind turbines. They're massive. I always say they remind me of like an alien invasion. invasion. They're yeah. like the 4G, 5G towers that they're putting in. And I get frustrated. I actually get angry when I see them because I'm like, how can that be better for our environment than the sources of fuel, the natural fuel that we've been using? And this bottom line, is like I know that they want to destroy a great deal of the world population but as they go to the climate change it has become a money-making business and and there's lots of dollars to be had there when you talk about 110 billion of Canadians hard-earned tax dollars being spent since Trudeau got into office on this nonsense it makes me just want to drive there say how can we just take this individual and put them all in jail Right. Mm -hmm. Because they are squeezing the noose on on the population. They're destroying our economy on intentionally. They're making themselves rich and it's got to stop. And it's only through awareness and people getting irate enough. Now, Tom, what I want to do is we've got a couple of people with their hands up and then get to some of the the Q&A. This is such an interesting conversation with you. I, I love it because I've been really put out you know, about all this climate alarmism uh, years ago when I was dealing with this, seeing that they're using Thomas the Train in cartoons to exploit our children um, and get them early in the homes, convinced there's uh, a climate uh, problem. And then my friends in Alberta, you know, all of us have, you know, our community, our fellow Canadians in Alberta have had their livelihood shut down over this, yeah. you know, uh, nonsense from the government. People are committing suicide. This was pre-COVID. And yeah. it's only been impacted even greater uh, because now the jobs that they did have trying to work three jobs to make up for the jobs that they'd had in the resource sector. Now those jobs are gone because they won't get double back. So, Terenzio, yeah. can we bring uh, some people on with their hands up, please? Yes, absolutely. Uh, just a, another friendly reminder for those that do, would like to ask a question. If you go to the bottom of your Zoom and just raise your hand virtually and we'll make sure we, we put you in the queue. Just while we're waiting, I'll point out one more thing. In the United States, mm-hmm. <clears throat> believe it or not, they give what's called a kill permit. You're allowed to kill a certain number of endangered species if you're running wind turbines. And <laughs> oh my goodness. So, so what, the, what the turbine companies do is before dawn, they scurry around the wind farms and they clean up all the dead birds so the tourists don't see them. So you have to ask, I mean, if these are so environmentally friendly, why do they give kill permits for endangered species? (laughs) 
Absolutely. I, I wouldn't have known that if you hadn't mentioned it. Okay, Terenzio, who have we got? All right. First is from Darlene. Darlene, did you see a message pop up on your screen? Sometimes we can't get people unmuted. So, Darlene, are you yeah. able to connect? In the meantime, we can oh. go to the next question. And next question okay. is from Ken. Hi, Ken. Yeah, just, can you? There you go. Hi. Okay. Uh, yeah, hi. I've, what? Got, I've got a two-part question. Uh, have you okay. heard of Peter Ridd's idea of uh, setting up an office of, of science that would be independent from the government, that would be uh, answering only to the Auditor General? which would be responsible for doing quality assurance that would involve testing, checking, and replicating any of the science before it gets put into government policy. And the second part to that question is, are you aware of any level of government that has done any due diligence on this climate change claptrap? Because I've been looking everywhere. The only place that I found anyone doing any kind of diligence at all is the Senate, and they didn't come to any conclusions. Uh, the only conclusion I can draw is that the only that all of this climate stuff is coming from the policy generating platforms in the political parties, and they're not doing any science. They're just trying to decide on what gets votes. Mm -hmm. well, you know, it's interesting. First of all, um, one of our top scientists actually went to meet with the environment minister. I won't say who it was because it was a confidential meeting, but the scientist was going on and on about you know the science of climate change. And the particular environment minister, I won't say who he was, it was a he, <laughs> it wasn't Catherine McKenna. He said, Dr. X, he said, you realize that science plays no role on this file. And my friend was so ticked off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he came home, he came home and he withdrew from the party because I guess he was a member before that. But no, I don't know of any particular move that you're describing to establish some sort of independent assessment. We actually arranged for several scientists to meet with uh, Dr. Carty, who was a previous uh, science advisor to the prime minister, and uh, it didn't get anywhere. I mean, Dr. Carty came in and was very surprised when all of these, you know, we had several, four or five scientists go in and talk to him uh, and show him, you know, the other side of the story and the fact that there's lots of science to support the climate realist position. And he was shocked, but he didn't do anything about it. So, so far, we've been totally unsuccessful at getting governments to actually have this kind of an independent audit. And I think the reason, certainly with the current government, that that won't happen is because, of course, their statements would be revealed as, as ridiculous. One of our scientists, again, I can't say who he was, but he works, used to work for Fisheries and Oceans. And he had just finished a policy paper that showed that the North Atlantic was cooling. Now, this scientist is being published all over the world, I and mean, he's a really leading expert. And the director was holding up the report before sending it to the publishing journal. And finally, my friend cornered him in the washroom and said, what's going on? Why aren't you sending my report to be published? And the director sort of patted him on the shoulder and said, well, you've had lots of papers published, haven't you? He said, yes, I have. And he said, well, you wouldn't mind if we didn't publish this one, would you? He said, yes, I would. It was a lot of work because, <laughs> you see, the, the director told him, he said, but you're saying the opposite to what the minister has just said. And so what it is, and it's interesting because I've seen other examples of this, too. It's not evidence based decision making. It's decision based evidence making. In other words, the minister makes a statement. You know, the North Atlantic is getting too hot or something. 
the fact is, of course, the, the research doesn't support that. So scientists are more likely policy wonks are given the job of finding research to support what the minister said. And I think it really goes back to what this previous environment minister said, namely, science does play, plays no role on the decision-making process. So they really don't care what the science says. It was quite remarkable, as you were saying, that the Senate actually did do some good work in this area. Nancy Green Rain, when she was a senator, uh, I worked with her actually to bring those scientists in. We have the hearing that they did, you know, with Dr. Patterson, Ian Clark, uh, Jan Weiser and Ross McKittrick. And they did a really great event. You know, the, the Senate actually did very useful work. And they've done that two or three times, actually. So that may be our solution because the MPs are just so frightened. You know, and, and sadly, with the exception of Roman Bobber, uh, who has yet to commit himself on the climate issue, all of the other candidates are all promoting the climate scare in one way or another. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny because I'll send an email to Pierre Polyev, for example, and, you know, I like Pierre. I think he's got a lot of attributes that are great. But on this issue, he's terrible. He keeps saying, oh, we're going to have no carbon tax, but we're going to do, you know, we're going to sequester carbon dioxide, carbon, as he calls it, underground. We're going to have more electric vehicles. We're going to get developing countries to go off coal and switch to natural gas to so-called so save the climate. But, you know, it's interesting because with Aaron O'Toole and his previous plan, there were various economists that showed that his regulation-focused plan instead of a carbon tax plan was actually more expensive. So the conservatives are, are very disappointing on this. And, you know, I think they're, they're very much going against the grassroots. We had a booth set up at the um, Strong and Free Networking Conference here in Ottawa, and it was just amazing. Hundreds of grassroots conservatives were coming around and saying, yeah, we really like what you're saying, but none of our leaders will say this. And no. when you talk to the leaders, they keep telling about, well, you know, I have to get into power first. So, yeah, but, you know, the first step to become conservative leader is that you get the support of the grassroots. I mean, they're the ones who make you conservative leader. And if the grassroots wants you to support uh, climate realism, if you're the only one doing it, you have a much better chance of winning. And I've, I've told this to a number of the candidates, but they're just so frightened. You know, they seem to well, think and, that they have yeah. to follow public opinion. They can't lead by actually no. showing people what the truth is. And, and Tom, this is exactly, you know, what the issue has been in the last years. The conservatives have been infiltrated. They're no longer a friend of the free world in Canada. Pierre Polliver, I'm convinced, is part of this. And that's why, uh, you know, he can talk a good talk, but he's been silent for two years. He mm -hmm. hasn't raised uh, his voice at all on behalf of Canadians or the hundreds of thousands of businesses that have been shut down. And there was not one conservative that was doing that. If they... If they did, they were removed from the party. Um, you know, I, I if we take you. a look at Maxime Bernier, he has mm -hmm. been speaking up against climate change and, you know, the other things that are creating problems. So it's not it's not based on science. It's based on political decisions. And mm -hmm. and that's what we're seeing throughout, you know, the major parties on everything, whether it's an experimental injection, uh, whether it's 5G being harmful because they haven't updated the harms of uh, electromagnetic fields uh, with Health Canada. They don't care about the science. This is about uh, putting forward uh, objectives 
right, that uh, the globalists have designed to cause basically the most amount of harm they can to citizens. And that's why bottom line, I keep coming back to, we have to get a coalition of Canadians who are actively involved in removing the current elected officials and replacing them with people that agree. We can't convince backbone, like people without a backbone in office right now to have Mm -hmm. a voice and stand up for media if it's not in them. They're not mm-hmm. going to do it. And why would we want to reelect them? And I can tell you where some of this originates. You know, when there was a Canadian Alliance Party, that was the group I was working for, actually, as a legisl- legislative assistant back around uh, 2002. Um, the Canadian Alliance was a truly conservative party. I mean, it was, it was actually supporting conservative values. And in particular, on the climate issue, they were saying very, very sensible things. And I guess I'm a bit biased because I was writing them. You know, I was writing the speeches for my boss, who was the environment critic. That was Bob Mills. And then you had the progressive conservatives who were existing at the same time. And I always had a joke. You know, I always think that's a funny name. It's like the left-right party. But anyway, the progressive conservatives only had two MPs left after Kim Campbell's destruction. And when the two parties merged, we assumed it was going to be a truly conservative party because there were far more Canadian Alliance MPs than there were two, um, you know, from the progressive conservatives. But what we didn't count on was this, and this is what people have to understand. The backroom people, the strategy people, the communications people, the head of these different departments, they were all red Tories. They were not true blue conservatives. Mm -hmm. And sadly, they hijacked the party. So even though a very conservative group, namely the the Canadian Alliance MPs, merged with the red Tory progressive conservatives, the party became just like the old red Tory parties. You know, and I think that's what's going on behind the scenes. And I talk to people who are current legislative assistants within the party and they're told point blank, you cannot bring up this issue. So sadly, it's these behind the scenes people. And you sort of have to wonder, do they not want their party to win? Well, I'll tell you something interesting. I think if they were given the choice between having a true blue conservative conservative party of Canada and a red Tory conservative party of Canada that, you know, kind of flounders and doesn't really stand for much, they would choose the second one. They would choose to lose the election rather than be true blue conservatives. And the reason is this, they're looking ahead to their careers in the communications sector, working for public relations firms, which in Ottawa are almost exclusively left wing. So what's happening, I believe, is that Many of the people that control the direction of the Conservative Party of Canada are actually betraying the party. And a lot of it is because of their own personal desire to work in a field that requires them to not be conservative. So sadly, the, you know, the MPs themselves are told to shut up. You know, um, I mean, look at Brad Trost. Yeah, yeah, I know Brad Tross personally, actually, and had yeah. many conversations, uh, you know, with him. And to me, it's the Brad Tross, it's the Derek Sloan, it's the Maxime Bernier's, who the ones that are making the difference. And so if these poor victims of MPs can't speak up in their party, why don't they create a coalition to step out and be independents 
and represent the constituents that uh, you know trusted their vote to them. So yeah. that would be my question. What do you have to say about the fact that they have so much, the government has so much money for um, all this climate change nonsense, but not for clean water? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's crazy. Eh? I mean, that is a social justice issue. And it's one of the things that left wingers should be very upset about because you have native reserves across Canada who still have boiled drinking water orders. Okay, so we can't give them uh, clean drinking water, but we can spend hundreds of billions on affecting climate, perhaps, maybe, someday. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. we actually had a cartoon made up about this, an editorial cartoon. And I'll send it to you because you might want to share it with people. What it shows is the divide between the rich West, relatively rich, and the poor people in Africa. And the African is asking for help. And behind him, you can see the crosses of his children who've died in famine or or drought or whatever. And the UN guy on the on the other side is is looking at his cell phone and he's taking a selfie and he's saying, "Well, don't worry, we're stopping carbon dioxide global warming, so this won't happen to your grandchildren." And and you know, the point is, he won't have yeah. any grandchildren. So no, you know, it's interesting, Tanya, because many people in developing countries recognize this. When I was at the mm -hmm. Copenhagen Climate Conference, the Africans were furious. They were saying, look, you are arguing about how to reduce carbon dioxide to maybe affect climate in 50 years. We need help today from yeah. real climate change, independent of the cause. And of course, climate always changes. I mean, if it weren't for climate change, I'd be sitting under two kilometers of ice right now. So thank God climate changes. And in some cases, people need help adapting to natural climate change. But in the Copenhagen conference, despite the UN saying we want half of it to go to adaptation and half of it to go to mitigation, trying to stop climate change, almost all the money was going to try to stop climate change. Very little was actually going to the boots on the ground approach needed to help real people today. And there's a to access water. Yeah. Sorry yeah. to interrupt, but to access water and good health. And instead, Justin Trudeau, for instance, is sending six hundred million dollars for abortions to the African people. And they're saying we don't want abortions. We want to be able to take care of our children and have facilities to get them the medical care they need. Now, when yeah. you talked about ice, can I ask you a quick question on that one? A lot of people, you know, a lot of the hysteria has been around, you know, that the ice is melting and the polar bears have nowhere to go. What's your comment on that? Well, first of all, if you know, it's funny, Bob Carter, who used to be our chief scientist, he's just passed away a little while ago. Um, he used to show a, a, a slide of polar bears on the ice. And he said, you know, this must be virtual reality. It can't be real polar bears. Because if polar bears were as fragile as people think, then they would have gone extinct. And he then shows the temperature graph and times in the past when the Arctic yes. truly was ice free, many times in the past. I mean, polar bears have been around for something like 70,000 years. And in that time frame, there were periods where the ice in the Arctic was pretty well gone. And he says, well, they must have gone extinct. You know, so there are no polar bears alive today. <laughs> and of course, Susan Crockford, who's somebody you might want to interview from the University of Victoria, she's a polar bear expert. She wrote a book called The Polar Bear Catastrophe That Never Happened. And right now yes. we have something like 25 to 30,000 polar bears in contrast to the 1960s when we had about 5,000. So mm -hmm. the, the reduction in sea ice is certainly not hurting them at all. In fact, what hurts polar bears are two things. One, we conquered, and that was excess hunting. That's the main reason yes. why the polar bear populations have recovered, because we've cut down on the excess hunting. But the other thing that hurts polar bears is when it's too cold, because the ice is too thick and the seals don't break through. They go somewhere else, 
and so their food source disappears. But you know, polar bears are a very, very robust animal. Uh, you know, when they were considering declaring them an endangered species in Washington, D.C., quite a number of the Inuit went down and they actually said, there's, there's too many polar bears. You know, don't declare them. The only endangered species is Inuit children because they've, the polar bears, there's so many of them, they wander into the town and they've actually been issuing a lot more hunting licenses, or sorry, uh, rifles actually to to people just to protect them from all the polar bears. But you know, right. the, interesting, the interesting thing about the Arctic there are parts of the Arctic where the ice is decreasing, yes. But then there's other parts, like in the Western Arctic, where there's no problem at all. Dr. Patterson, the fellow who was my, you know, inspiration to change sides, he does a lot of research in the Western Arctic of Canada. And in particular, he's paid to try and find out if the ice roads are going to be viable for decades in the future. Because for diamond miners and other people who are developing resources up there, they want to know that the roads are going to still be usable for many, many years to come. Otherwise, they don't want to build the mines because they'd have to be bringing in almost everything by helicopter for, for the whole year. And he, right. found that, he found that in the Western Arctic, the ice roads have 30 years ahead of them with no problems at all. So, of course, right. you know, National Geographic, they don't send people to that part of the Arctic to take pictures. They send it to the part of the Arctic where, uh, you know, ice is decreasing. And in some places, you know, if permafrost is melting, houses may in fact be falling down. And so, I mean, it, it's kind of like that cartoon we had. You're going to have a guy from Ottawa go up to uh, that part of Canada and say to the native whose home is falling down, well, we're working to stop climate change for 50 years from now. Well, how about helping them now? And, you know, Tanya, this is a problem all over the world. Right now, the let's see, it's the Climate Policy Initiative out of uh, San Francisco. They track how much money is being spent on what's called climate finance around the world. And that can include adaptation. It can include mitigation. It includes alternative energy, which supposedly is stopping climate change, which, of course, it isn't. Mm -hmm. And they've tracked over a billion dollars U.S. a day, a billion a day. And that's all they've tracked. It's probably a lot more than that. And of that, 91% of it is going to try to stop climate change. 91%. Remember, the UN wanted it 50-50. But, but the reason is this. If you actually look at where the money is going, it's going to alternative energy companies primarily. And they make an absolute fortune because of the climate scare. The adaptation actions, which con constitute only about 7%, there's some of it that's part adaptation and mitigation together, but the 7% the that goes to adaptation, it doesn't make much money for the big uh, international companies. You know, if you're building wells for people or you're helping them uh, move, you know, to an area that's away from encroaching deserts, then, you know, this just doesn't make big money. So the driver in all this is money. And it's the same thing mm -hmm. in the case of the media. A leading Canadian editor, uh, I can't say his newspaper because I would identify who he was, but I asked him, you know, they used to publish us, say, around 19, uh, 1999, 2000, 2005. They would publish us all the time, and now they won't publish us at all. So I asked him, why do you not publish both sides of the climate debate and let the reader decide which they agree with? Right. He said, oh, well, we agree with David Suzuki. So I said, well, that's interesting, but do you have anybody on staff who even that's has a That's one bachelor's? side of the argument. Yeah, do you have anyone <laughs> that, on staff? That is who, the other side. 
Yeah. So, so I asked them, I said, do you have anybody on staff who even has a Bachelor of Science so they can judge between the two sides? He said, no. So I said, come on. So why are you really not publishing Dr. Patterson or Ian Clark from Ottawa U or Ian Weiser or all these others? He said, well, Tom, don't tell anybody, but if we publish your point of view, our advertisers wouldn't like it. And I thought about it and I realized, yeah, they like negative news that sells media and increases their circulation. But there's another reason. If you have some car company or a printing company that has a big $10,000 ad, okay, because they're very expensive in these newspapers, mm -hmm. and they're talking about how they're reducing greenhouse gases to save the climate, so buy our printer. The last thing they want is to turn the page and have Dr. Patterson saying, you can't control climate. I mean, get real. So yeah. it's money, again, that's driving it in the case of the media as well. I mean, a certain amount of ideology there, too, because they're mostly left-wing. But sadly, it is the money. You know, it is. I, it is a great driving force. As I was going through investigating this, I mean, we're even experiencing something. When we set up chapters, we send them printed materials. Again, I won't say who we're using right now because uh, we're definitely going to find a Canadian printer that is on our side. But we have certain mask flyers, and they have refused to, uh, you know, print these mask flyers because they sell masks. They don't care oh. about the truth. They don't yeah. care about the destruction of our nations. They just care about making that almighty buck. Um, so let's get to, we'll do one or two more questions and then we're, we're going to need to come to a close here. This has been fantastic. You know, yeah. I believe truly that God is the absolute controller of the weather. I do believe as well that climate is always changing. It will continue to change, that we do need to take care of the earth and do our part to get rid of all these plastics. And you'll notice Trudeau was like frantic. Ooh, we got to stop with all the straws. But he hasn't <laughs> minded the billions of of pounds of uh, crappy gloves and masks that have gone, you know, into our oceans and into our landfills. And so the other uh, side of this is the geoengineering. So mm -hmm. I believe that God controls the weather, but I are I truly believe as well that there are those who are trying to play God on multiple levels. And uh, so what do you have to say about geoengineering? Have you uh, looked into that at all? Yeah, geoengineering is very dangerous. I mean, first of all, you know, it's like giving tools to a, a four-year-old, taking the back off your computer and saying, here, now fix my computer. Um, because we don't really know how the, the climate system works. I mean, we truly, we don't know if it's going to be hotter or colder in the future. The Russians uh, out, of Saint, out of the Polkovo Observatory in St. Petersburg, for example, they say that we're approaching a grand solar minimum when the sun is going to be as, as weak as it was in the 1600s. And at that time, the earth was so cold, there was a meter of ice, a meter thick ice on the Thames River in London, and they had frost fairs and oxen on the ice. And the Russians are saying that we're headed back towards that kind of condition, that kind of mm -hmm. cooling. So the whole idea that we're gonna put up particulates in the atmosphere, essentially creating an artificial volcanic shield that's what a lot of this is about. Eh? They want to shield the earth from sunlight so that we can supposedly stop global warming from occurring. I mean, this could trip us into the next ice age, quite frankly. I mean, if the earth is heading into a global cooling period anyways, and many scientists are now saying that because of the sun going into this grand solar minimum, if you're putting up material to purposely cool the earth, we could trip the earth into the next glacial period. 
And that is a, a huge threat. Uh, I think that the, the whole concept of geoengineering is completely insane. It's totally dangerous because mm -hmm. until we understand the climate system, we should just be adapting to whatever nature throws at us next. Because trying to cool the earth artificially, which is what this is doing, and you know that's a big topic because it gets into chemtrails and all sorts of things, uh, this is very, very dangerous. We've written a number of articles on this actually, um, I should just encourage people, have a look at americaoutloud.com, americaoutloud.com. It's a pretty outstanding website. It says many of the same things that you're saying. Dr. Jay Lair and I actually have uh, been writing for them for a couple of years now, and we have a radio show. One of the radio shows I think people should really have a look at is a recent one that we did. It's on, on the homepage of ICSC proper like there's two ICSCs there's ICSC International and ICSC Canada if people go to ICSC-climate.com you'll see right on the homepage is an interview we have with one of the absolute leaders in the world on radiation physics he studies how much warming could occur if carbon dioxide doubled or nitric oxide doubled or methane doubled you know what could happen uh, under those conditions and what he shows is that a doubling of CO2, for example, from our current 420 to 940 wouldn't even cause a one degree yeah. temperature rise. OK, so that's a very interesting interview for people to look at. Uh, Will Happer, he's from Princeton University, one of the leaders in the world in this field. And of course, he's been censored out regularly. They just don't want him to talk because nobody can refute him. He's done the proper studies, the empirical and, and theoretical studies to actually show that we do not have a climate emergency. Right on the homepage, icsc-climate.com. That's excellent. And we'll make sure that we post that uh, link in the uh, chat. So I, I love it because we have a team and they send me questions. And uh, so I want to just ask uh, one final question because I know that it's getting to, uh, to 6.30 here. Well, 9.30 your time. And we appreciate you staying up late. <laughs> I, I hear you're a late owl, though, anyway. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> you do research. <laughs> Okay, that's awesome. So uh, what is a consequence, though? We've talked about if nitrogen and carbon dioxide increase, but for instance, what if nitrogen uh, decreases or, or the CO2? What will happen to the environment if they're uh, effective? And do they have another nefarious plan be behind uh, actually reducing nitrogen and carbon dioxide? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. I mean, carbon dioxide... You know, we're much closer to the level at which plants start to die. You know, you get down to like in the last glacial period, we got down to around 180 parts per million. At 150, plants start to die. And that's the beginning of the end of life on Earth. I mean, literally. And it's interesting because we've just had Dr. Patrick Moore join our group, ICSC Canada. He's now one of our directors. And he gives a presentation that's stunning. And you remember, Patrick Moore is a Ph.D., in biology and ecology okay so he's no joker he really knows what he's talking about he shows how carbon dioxide over the millions of years has been decreasing and if humans hadn't come along and released carbon dioxide from the rocks he was forecasting that we were headed down to a dangerously low level of carbon dioxide where plants would start to die so his presentations actually focus on, thank God, we're increasing carbon dioxide. We may someday get up to the levels that are optimal for plants. But if we hadn't come along, the low CO2 levels 
could very well start to, well, it would definitely reduce crop yield, no question about that, but it could also lead to mass starvation and death around the world. Wow. Uh, and you know, it's interesting because as carbon dioxide has risen, areas of the earth that were too dry to support crop growth are now growing plants. So CO2 has nothing but bad. In the case of nitrogen, I mean, most of our atmosphere is already nitrogen. Mm -hmm. um, nitrous, nitric oxide, nitrous oxide, N2O anyway, um, it's not a problem. And in fact, the interesting thing is that Patrick um, Will Happer actually analyzes N2O. He looks at uh, methane, CH4. He looks at carbon dioxide. And he shows that in no case are any of those gases a significant danger to climate. Now, if nitrogen gets too low, of course, you don't have as much um, action in plants. I mean, nitrogen is important to make plants actually operate. And that's, of course, why they put nitrogen in fertilizer. That's why the fertilizer, of course, is injecting nitrogen. So I'm not sure of the long-term effect of a reduction in nitrogen, but I suspect it would be similar to what's happening in the case of carbon dioxide, that it would interfere with plant growth and would be a threat if it becomes too low. But from a climate perspective, which is the main concern about N2O, that's nitrogen, uh, nitrous oxide, um, we don't have to worry about it because it just is not a threat, not at all. And, and yeah. uh, Dr. Happer shows this very, very clearly. But, you know, when people talk about CO2 rising, I say, hooray, bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bring it on. There's a in the United States out of Tampa, Arizona called CO2science.org. People should check it out, CO2science.org. And they show very, very clearly that we should be hoping that CO2 continues to rise so as to actually... Uh, feed the billions of people yet to be born. So, yeah, it is in many ways an anti-human movement. And I'll just end, end by saying mm -hmm. one thing. To give you an idea of how extreme these movements can become, there is a group in the United States that has thousands of members that's called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement, if you can believe that. And what right. they're saying is they're saying that we should stop having children completely and yes. the human race should die out. That's the extreme to which some environmentalists are going. So Yeah, it's crazy. You know, yeah, so pushing a reduction in CO2, it's actually in that direction. We should want CO2 to go much higher. Uh, and, and indeed, it's, it's nothing but good for the planet. Yeah, well, thank you. You know what? I feel so encouraged by, by speaking with you about these things and uh, just reaffirming, you know, what I've been learning uh, over the last weeks as I've been preparing for tonight. Then can you help me to figure out then with all of the um, hysteria as well regarding vehicles that are fueled by diesel or uh, gas? What, what do you have to say about that? Is that a better fuel system than the electric vehicles, considering all of the harm that lithium batteries, et cetera, you know, pose to the environment? Yes. In fact, the whole EV thing is driven by the climate scare, the idea that somehow using electric vehicles is going to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions. But that's not true, actually. Uh, engineer Ron Stein out of California, he's uh, energy advanced. He's a very advanced energy engineer, and he looks at these things, a complete life cycle analysis when you count making the battery, making the EV, making the, the vehicle itself. He shows, believe it or not, that in the life of an electric vehicle, it produces more greenhouse gases than in the life of a typical uh, gas-powered car. So even the rationale, even if you believe that we do have to reduce CO2, there's no point in going to electric vehicles. I mean, electric vehicles are also terrible for Canada 
I mean, we're talking about moving all of our buses, for example, in Ottawa to electric vehicles. And the Auditor General of Ottawa, she was very critical of the city. She said, you've done your trials in the spring, summer and fall. You've never done it in the winter. So Ottawa exactly. hundreds of millions of dollars buying electric buses when they haven't tested them in the winter. In Berlin, That's Germany, right. they moved over to electric buses and many of them broke down halfway around their routes and they, people had to be rescued <laughs> by internal combustion engine buses. And you know, <laughs> Germany is, doesn't get anywhere near as cold as Ottawa. So EVs are a huge mistake. And of course, the question then becomes, how do you get the electricity to run the EVs? Oh, we're going to have wind and solar power. Oh, yeah, sure. And you're going to have to have natural gas stations everywhere. The other point, I'll just say one quick point, because this is below your mind. It takes about 30 minutes at least to charge an EV from, from flat to full, and sometimes a lot more. It depends on how you're charging it. It takes five minutes to fill up a gas-powered car. So that's at least six times more. So what that means is you'll need six times as many EV stations because people are sitting there for half an hour. Instead of sitting there for five minutes and then Zoom, they're off. They're sitting there for at least a half an hour. So a city like Ottawa that perhaps has 300 gas stations would have to have six times as many stations. Okay. Yeah. Where are you going to find the space for all these? You know, so yeah. I mean, the whole EV push is completely insane from a safety point of view in the winter, from a pollution point of view, from a land point of view, where do you get your power? You know, one of the jokes is that wind power, when you get it from China, when you're building, you know, you're buying components from China, how do you think they generate the power to make the wind turbines? They use yeah. coal. They use coal. Yes. So you're not getting away from fossil fuels anyways. All you're doing is crippling the West by forcing us to use these inefficient energy sources and enriching the Chinese, you know, because they don't yeah. care about the environment. They'll make all the wind turbines we want. <laughs> yeah, they're not doing anything to, to help us out. They're not uh, shutting down all their coal mines. And, you know, all of this, uh, you know, getting the electric vehicles, the buses, it's all part of the UN's 2030 agenda, the World Economic Forum, the smart cities, right? Oh, yeah. How smart is that where they can't keep the buses going in the middle of the, the cold winter? And so are you saying, and I'm blown away too, because I have a, a Volkswagen Touareg I drive and it's a diesel and I'm going to the pumps and, and it's less expensive to produce diesel and yet, you know, you're paying 30 cents more uh, per liter to get diesel right now, which I believe is part of interrupting the food supply. It's sticking it to the truckers. It's causing, you know, the inflation of food prices to rise. So can you explain to me just one more time touching on uh, gas engines and diesel I, I'm taking it that by all of this, that even gas engines are not harming the environment. It's not a pollution. It's a carbon dioxide, and it, it's not the the frightful uh, use of fuel that the government is trying to convince us of. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's a couple of points there I'll bring up quickly. First of all, the pollution from a car today, a typical car, because of catalytic converters, is 1 20th of what it was, say, in the 1950s. So a typical car today puts out very, very low real pollution. Carbon dioxide is another question. 
I mean, it puts out just as much CO2. Whenever you're burning anything, it puts out CO2. So if you don't care about CO2, the actual pollution produced from modern cars is very, very low. And in fact, it's interesting, if you look at the pollution levels in cities across Canada, with the exception of ozone that's gone up very slightly, our pollution levels have gone down now for decades. I was at a presentation a little while ago and I got up to the mic and I told the people this, and the Green Party were there and they were quite upset, but to their credit, they came up to me afterwards and they said, well, what are you talking about? Pollution's rising. I said, well, no, it isn't. And I laid out the graphs all over the table and they looked at it and said, oh, can we take these with us? <laughs> oh, so, wow, good for you. <laughs> yeah. That's a win. So, you know, my, my dad used to say, if they spent more time in the library or actually doing some research, they might not be on the protest line. So, yeah, today's yeah. modern car is very, very clean. There's no reason to get away from gasoline at all. The only reason the prices are going through the roof is because companies are scared about this net zero target and they're reluctant to invest properly in further production of oil and natural gas. And, you know, they, they don't want to build any of these f facilities because they don't want to be left with them all left high and dry. So our high gas prices are being caused by our governments around the world. The fact 100%. that they are... Yeah, not only is Trudeau taking something like 37%, um, 37, what is it, 37%, I think it is, on just tax. So, I mean, he loves it when the price goes through the roof. But they're also scaring the petrochemical industry, so they're not investing properly. And that's the major reason. It has nothing to do with Russia. If you actually look at the gas prices, they were going up before the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. And they will continue to rise as long as our government does not have responsible policies towards development of our fossil fuel industry. Uh, we really right. should be developing that. I mean, it's, it's one of the major sources of revenue for all of Canada. We're going to just simply bankrupt our country. I mean, look what's just happened in Sri Lanka. I mean, Sri Lanka has gone bankrupt, quite frankly. They can't give gasoline to average people. You know, their, their stores are out of food. I mean, the, the whole presidential palace, et cetera, was completely invaded. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen tomorrow in Canada, but we're headed down a very dangerous path with this energy transition that they keep talking about. First of all, it's impossible. Okay, you cannot run an industrial society on wind and solar power. But secondly, as they try to do it, as they spend hundreds of billions of dollars more, it's going to make our prices go literally through the roof. It's going to lead to massive job loss. And eventually it's going to lead to massive blackouts. And this is something to be very scared about as we approach winter uh, here in Canada. In Texas, in February of 2021, Texas was... Oh, we've had sorry, a freeze there. Is... There we go. Oh, sorry. So you, fro Texas... you froze for a brief moment. You said Texas... Yeah, now this is really important. I know we don't have much time, but uh, this is such important, maybe the most important point of the whole discussion. Texas in February of 2021 had 58% of its electricity coming from wind power a few days before the big storm hit when it got really cold. Then two things happened. First of all, the wind died, and it went from 58% to essentially zero. Okay, suddenly they imagine a state the size of Texas lost 58% of their electricity in a matter of a day or so. The other thing, of course, that happened was it got very, very cold. And so they suddenly had a much greater demand for natural gas. And this will completely blow your mind. It sounds like something out of Dr. Seuss. I mean, you wouldn't think this would actually happen in the real world. But to appease the environmentalists, 
The Texas government decided to run the pumps and valves on many of the natural gas lines with wind power. So even though a lot of these gas lines had gas in them, many of them couldn't actually move their gas around because of the wind had died. So media, mainstream media are trying to hide this. They're saying yes. that the 700 people, 700 people died because of the Texas freeze, okay? They're saying this was caused because of the failure of natural gas. Well, of course it failed. Not only did it get very cold, but it had to compensate for 58% of the electricity that was suddenly lost because wind power went offline. And, and as I say, mm -hmm. some of the gas lines couldn't even pump their gas because they were run on wind power. So no, it was natural gas was the savior, at least prevented them from having an even worse catastrophe. But the real cause of the problem was trying to green, you know, make the state supposedly a supporter of green power and moving more and more to wind. So, you know, Dr. Jay Lair, who's my co-author at America Out Loud, he thinks that what happened in Texas has to happen over and over and over and over all across the Western world before people wake up. It's sad. Yeah, and realize. We into, yeah. yeah, we are in some in for some difficult times. And, you know, that's why one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to start lobbying as much as we can behind the scenes with uh, conservatives and others in the government to say, look, you guys have got to wake up because you're going to be responsible for a literal catastrophe in Canada, not just a reduction in our standard of living, but you're going to be responsible for many deaths. So, yeah, that's one of our plans going forward is we're going to start meeting with them privately. So if people want to learn more about us, icsc-canada.com. <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you so much, Tom, and we'll be sure to get that out. And, and let me know if there's, you know, an action that you're taking that you need support on. I love to do the calls to action and get the uh, citizens nationwide. I, I says we're giving the silent majority a voice and we're getting them active because I don't think that uh, necessarily we should be silent in the back rooms doing this as well. We got to be out here in the public. We've got to be bringing awareness and talking about these issues, which we're doing. And um, I I'm I'm concerned as well about what it's doing to not only uh, you know the workers in Alberta who have lost their job, but what this does to uh, Canadians. Uh, you know what's coming in the cold snaps, the cold season, and it's always frustrated me. I drive to my sister's now, and uh, she's up in the mountains, and it's it's a couple of hours drive away, and now I'm seeing the pipeline. At first, I was thinking, what's all the construction, the trees going down and, and, you know, all of this massive work that's being done. But it's the pipeline going through as they promised. And um, when we consider that our fuel in B.C. is shipped to Washington across the line, uh, you know, and then coming back to Canadian as Canadians as fuel at the pumps, why are we going through this? We could be completely self-sustained in oh, the yeah. fuel industry we could be providing fuel to others and yet they would rather bring it from overseas and yet they're all wor worried about the climate yet they're willing to ship it and yeah. and overseas rather than just managing you know what the resources we have within canada you know that this is an assault against canadians and and the problem is is that people have stopped thinking critically they don't mm -hmm. see past the flashy um, advertisements, you know, about these uh, battery-operated uh, uh, vehicles and, you know, how they're going to do, you know, it, I think sometimes it makes them feel better about buying a, a battery-operated vehicle because they feel like they're doing something noble 
when they're actually not only hurting themselves, they're hurting all of Canadians by buying a battery-operated vehicle right now and accepting oh, yeah. this and not doing the research. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of lazy Canadians who are, are just sitting back and going along with the mainstream media. And uh, we got to do something about it, and we got to get noisy. And so, again, right. I just want to ask you in closing, um, you know, if you could appeal to the people on the call and to Canadians, what would that appeal look like? Well, what the would appeal it would like? be to not be afraid to stand up and say what's true, okay? To actually call in to talk radio. That's a good source because if you write letters to the editor or, you know, they can just cancel it out. They just don't, they just don't publish. Uh, you write letters to your MP, they don't publish. But call in to talk radio. Support groups like yours. Support groups like ours that are actually out there making things change, okay? We're actually telling people about what's, you know, the Ottawa Climate Plan, completely insane, almost $60 billion. The Climate Plan for Calgary, over $80 billion. I mean, people have to be made aware of this because not only is it going to make Calgary and Ottawa and eventually other cities, places you don't want to live because property taxes in Ottawa, for example, are going to go up almost 40%, if you can believe that, just to pay for the climate plan. But also these are going to become dangerous cities to live in because you won't have a steady supply of power. So yeah, I encourage people to support our group. We'll keep you totally up to date with what we're doing. We are published in some media, the Sun Chain, National Post just recently. And of course, we're always on Rebel News. I'll be on Rebel News actually a week from today. And we'll be talking about something called the non the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is totally ludicrous. They're trying to make it out to be like nuclear weapons. And the city of Ottawa just signed it, just signed this treaty last week. And they're pushing for cities all across Canada to sign this. And I mean, it's really a suicidal treaty, quite frankly. It's not, you know, they, they're acting like it's protecting us from fossil fuels. No, no. It's actually a suicidal treaty. It'll kill us all if we if we let them go to the extremes. I mean, it'll it'll basically get to the point of being a disaster. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for coming on the show and uh, for educating us. And uh, thank you also for advising us about this fossil fuel fuel treaty. Um, oh, I know yeah. that in Ontario, I thought it was Toronto that was going to be one of the first smart cities. And, uh, you know, they were well on their way with the planning, but it was because of the public backlash that mm-hmm. they ended up uh, um, closing it down. And so yeah. I just want to encourage uh, everybody on the call right now. You are an individual, but you become a force. You have a voice, use it, and you can absolutely 100% create change. The other thing we all need to be aware of is that as far as these smart cities are concerned and the environmental changes, they actually provincially have um, individuals that are part of the climate change, the World Economic Forum, and they have these committees that are planning on how to initiate this within the cities. And the UN 2030 agenda has very clearly said that we're going to use the municipalities to um, implement these uh, changes because they're closest to the people. And I've had uh, city councillors come to me with great concern. One of them was involved in BC on one of these committees, and she had direct communication that had come from Trudeau to these individuals on the committee. And as far as I'm concerned, what took place is treason against the citizens of this nation. And a police report was uh, filed. I don't know. I haven't had feedback if anything is being done, but we are serious. 
we're in a war and we need to get involved and we need to get these globalists out of our government offices. And uh, again, so uh, Tom, thank you for bringing so much to our awareness tonight. We look forward to being in touch with you further. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Super. Thanks so much. Well, I always go, whoo, when we're finished, uh, you know, an event like this. Um, I was just so thrilled to create the call to action this week because I, I believe in the issues that Action for Canada is writing on. And uh, the beauty about Action for Canada is is we report on many issues that we believe are um, important to uh, all of our tens of thousands of followers. But what we appreciate behind our reporting is that there's individuals like Tom who are taking on these issues full time. And we like to highlight who they are and those organizations. And we're so grateful that they are on the front line of the fight. And so what Action for Canada likes to do is we like to come behind these organizations. We like to get behind them. We like to do the calls to action. And together, we are bringing greater awareness to all Canadians. All right. So next week, I'm super pleased, as we mentioned at the onset, that uh, Rocco Galati will be on. And I want to bring to your attention that it's going to start um, only next week uh, because Rocco has uh, struggled with his health somewhat and he's three hours ahead in Ontario. We are starting a little bit earlier. We're going to forego the orientation next week. We'll be starting at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, uh, the call to action, we're going to send it out this week because I want to make sure that everybody possible is aware of this Empower Hour invitation. And I'm adding a little bit information about the legal actions. And um, I spent today uh, writing up a, a really nice bio on Rocco. And I'm just so impressed with this man. And he comes uh, from Italy. His family suffered under the Mussolini regime. His father particularly paid a high price for that. And so Rocco is no stranger to tyranny. He came to Canada. He has seen for many years uh, the writing on the wall, what was, was coming our way, and he tried to warn Canadians. And he has taken on some of the toughest cases in Canada against the government. Uh, He doesn't spend time on just uh, plaintiffs having difficulty. If it involves the government, Rocco has been willing to take those cases on, and it has always been in defense of our Constitution, our Constitution, our Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So we're so grateful to Rocco. He is a force, and uh, we look forward to that. And then the week after, um, I'm excited, Dan Vachon, he happens to be one of our chapter leaders in the East. He is going to come on and we're going to talk about food preparation. It's summer. Some of you have your gardens going. We're going to talk about gardens within your home, how you can do that and grow things, and then preparing, preparing for the fall and for the winter and for potential food shortages. And so uh, we think this is an important topic as well, and we're excited to have Dan on and his presentation. So I just want to thank you so much. I'm just so um, grateful to all of you who join us on Wednesday nights. We continue to ask you to be a part of the solution. Share Action for Canada's uh, weekly actions. They're so power-packed with information and more Canadians need to be aware. And you could be a part of that. So thank you. God bless you. And God bless Canada.
Revolution. We are going to be in every town and every city, and we are going to build communities within these communities of like-minded people who are actually going to care for one another again and love on each other and give each other the help when they're down. Thank you.